This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Designed specifically for venture-backed startups, Brex is the perfect corporate card for fast-growing companies. Head to brex.com and sign up with the promo TFR to get waived card fees for life. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Thank you for joining me for another episode of The Full Ratchet. Today, we're talking hands-on, high-engagement investing with John Greathouse of Rincon Ventures. We will address items including how John defines institutional mass and how he helps early-stage startups acquire it, the main methods by which investors can help early on, which methods have the most ROI for different business types, how tactical John gets, the frequency of his involvement, and how the interaction works between investor and founder when he's contributing as a role player, his opinion of how hands-on investors should be with portfolio companies, how this plays out in practice, and if Rincon requires a board seat upon investment. Those questions and a little surf chat in part one of the interview, here it is on The Hands-On Investor. Today, John Greathouse joins us from Santa Barbara. He's a partner at Rincon Venture Partners, has held a number of senior executive positions with successful startups, is a professor at the University of California at Santa Barbara, and writes over at his blog, johngreathouse.com. John, thanks so much for joining us on the program. Yeah, thanks for having me, Nick. I appreciate it. Just to kick off, can you get us started here by walking through your background and how you became involved in startup investing? Yeah, there's a million paths to venture capital, which is one of the things I think is cool about it because it brings people from just a variety of backgrounds. Uh, my particular path was the operator path, which you know some of the other, some of my buddies, Suster and Brad Feldes, these other guys that made more prominent. Jason Lipkins and other ones that kind of took that path. Yep. So I was a serial entrepreneur. I was kind of that fifth grader selling lemonade and all the way through selling craft through junior high and high school and did a medical robotics company, which we sort of created the medical robotics industry. We took the company public. We sold it to Intuitive Surgical, actually merged with Intuitive Surgical. I then ran into a professor and we ended up creating the go-to-meeting, go-to-my-PC family of products, which we sold to Citrix. Uh, helped another little company go public, took some time off, and then I started uh, doing angel investing. And I realized that was kind of fun because I could help startups uh, along the way without having to do all the heavy lifting. And then in 07, I joined uh, Jim Andelman, who had already started Rincon Ventures. He started in 2005. So I've been with Jim now. It's the longest tenure I've ever had in the same job, 07 to now. And I've been teaching, as you mentioned, about the same amount of time. So I guess I'm tied. I've been teaching for about nine years, and I've been DC for about nine years. Got it. Has the focus, the investment focus shifted over that period of time? Well, I joined, Jim had um, a little bit more eclectic focus before because he was not an operator. He comes to venture through um, investment banking. So he had a wider aperture. When I joined, it just made sense for us to, to narrow the aperture down to things that I had some experience with. So we're B2B SaaS. I think we really carved a name out for ourselves. Certainly in Southern California, we're really one of the 
I guess, most prominent, and I guess you're a big fish in a small pond kind of thing, but one of the most prominent B2B SaaS early stage venture funds is, is definitely right on SoCal. And we're getting the reputation in Northern California as well. In fact, five of our last six deals have been in the Bay Area. So we just had our first 10-inch snowstorm here in Chicago this past weekend, and I'm kicking myself for moving back to Illinois. I've got to ask, how's the surf been out at Rincon Point? Um, no, Rincon is too good for me. So Rincon's a world-class surf spot. I'm more the uh, fifth-class uh, surf spots, like uh, the one at campus or some of the other more local ones. You have to be pretty good, and uh, you don't want to get anybody's way in Rincon, but the surf has been has actually sucked pretty uh, dramatically the last several months. We haven't had too many swells. So I think everybody is ready with El Nino. We're all ready to, to get up and get wet. Spending more time at Campus Point instead of Rincon? Exactly. Yeah, Campus is a nice little three to five foot wave that I can ride. <laughs> Rincon <laughs> is a pretty gnarly ass wave. <laughs> So this is a, a bit of a curveball, but I came across your writing on the lessons from surfing for the startup investor. Uh, can you take a moment and talk about how surfing has helped you become a better investor? Well, I think that might be a good indication of how boring surfing can be when you're sitting out there waiting for waves. <laughs> <laughs> Especially when you're, when you're not just, catching them, right? <laughs> I know. Wait, I mean, I'm thinking, here I am, I'm surfing, and I'm thinking about how this relates to investing. That's really sad. <laughs> Um, but, and I'm also not a very good surfer. I just don't want anybody thinking there was a recent, uh, they did a nice, very flattering piece of me locally here. And they took a picture of me with my surfboard. I'm like, Jesus Christ, I'm not, for the record, I'm not a great surfer. <laughs> you know, I think some of the thoughts that came and I wrote that over a two year period. Like every time I would go out there in the boring wall between sets, I would think about different aspects of different analogous aspects of surfing and investing in it. Some of them are pretty obvious. One thing that I think Jim is really good at, my partner, Jim Andelman, is is patience and not chasing the last wave. So you'll see people that are new to surfing will often kind of go to where the last peak was on the last set. And sometimes the sometimes it's consistent. And you'll see peak after peak after peak. But more often that's not the case. So just because there was a nice set that rolled into your left, it doesn't mean that's where the next set's going to roll in. So be patient, not chasing the last set is a good one. I think friendly yet aggressive collaboration is another good one. Anybody that surfed knows that it can be it can be cutthroat. And if you paddle out and there's a bunch of guys that have been sitting there for a while, there's a whole etiquette as to how to approach them and sort of try to ingratiate yourself and, and not piss everybody off. So in other words, you want to take your waves when it's your turn. Like, you know, you better get your own waves. If you sit there and are too passive, you're not going to get anything. But if you're a dick about it, people are going to cut you off whenever they can. So <laughs> the same thing in investing, right? Like you can screw me on a deal, right? You know, you could, but I'm probably not going to want to do a deal with you ever again. And so surfing is called snaking somebody. When you snake them, you, know, you either take their wave or you, or you clip their board, knock them off or whatever. And if somebody snakes you once when you're surfing, they're going to do it a bunch of times. They're not going to just do it once. It's a pattern of behavior. And I think it's the same thing in business. If somebody's going to do that, they're going to keep doing it. So do yourself a favor and just avoid those people. Yep. So it's a, it's a fun article to write, but again, I ain't no great server. <laughs> Neither am I. So John, you've spoken in the past about investors helping startups gain institutional mass. First off, how do you define institutional mass in the startup context? Yeah, that's probably an overly fancy <laughs> term. For me, just taking it from a handful of founders, we typically come in very early 
we're not the first dollar in. Clearly, we want to see friends and family and fools and other people put money in first. But we're often the first institutional investor. So there'll be often angels. The whole angel syndicate usually does a seed and then we'll come in. So it's not uncommon for us to come in when it's the founders and maybe two or three other people very, very early. So institutional masses, people, it's hiring on the first salesperson, the first sales leader, somebody that knows a little bit about marketing. Somebody, oftentimes it's hiring that first financial person. Um, you know, we don't need a CFO or the early stages, but we do need somebody that can manage payables and receivables and keep us out of trouble and make sure cash flow is monitored. And oftentimes, you know, sometimes those are super easy hires for founders. Sometimes they're so focused on running the business. It's helpful to have someone do interviews and help recruit and use their network to, to fill some of those slots. So what are some of the methods by which investors can assist startups in building institutional mass? We're very hands-on. So I think the advantage of having a very narrow focus, as I mentioned, the B2B SaaS focus. Uh, we also have the other part of our portfolio is ad tech marketing tools that help comp- other companies make money online. So the plumbing that would um, you know help someone scale up their, their marketing spend. Sure. Now, of late, there's been a lot of uh, disruption in the ad tech market. So I'd say in the last 18 months or so, we've almost all the deals we've done have been on the other side of the house, which is the B2B SaaS. And because of that, you know, we're solving the same problems over and over again. So it's, it's, you know, it's the same set of marketing challenges, the same set of the same sort of, kind of marketing content questions and the same kind of salespeople, a certain mentality that we want to bring in someone that understands SaaS. Maybe not they're not a former Oracle rep that maybe five hundred thousand dollars a year, but they're not a twenty-two-year-old kid right out of school. What does that profile look like? Because we're solving the same problems over and over, I think we can we can really help founders that maybe haven't seen that problem four or five times before. Yeah, what are some of the methods that you've used that seem to have the best payback or the the best ROI for a B2B SaaS business, for example? Well, I, you know, there's no silver bullet. We all wish there were, but for some of the ventures, it has been content marketing. So let's see how far we can get on inbound. So driving just inbound leads without spending money. So more like earned marketing instead of paid marketing. Let's exhaust that or at least reach a, a plateau and then start pouring money into marketing as opposed to as soon as you get financing, feel obligated to you know start spending on, on customer acquisition. There certainly you have to do that or you're never going to scale. But sometimes companies might do that a little too prematurely without some guidance. That's one area. I, I think the other one is just not being afraid to hire salespeople in front of the revenue, you know, being willing to invest in two or three people when you think you might only need one, knowing that some people are going to trip out, some people aren't going to, it's not going to work for them. Oftentimes, these entrepreneurs are just really frugal. That's why they got venture money in the first place is they were able to perform on a low budget. Sometimes they actually need to be pushed. Uh, to spend a little bit of money, which is always painful for me because I'm the cheapest guy in the world. And when I was an operator, I was a very frugal operator. So I find myself in role reversal, oftentimes telling folks to spend more money as opposed to uh, back in the day when I was always trying to save it. So is this often happening in an advisory capacity or are you really hands-on? Are you taking some tactical actions as well? Yeah, we definitely are tactical. It's going to depend on the investment. Most of the investments of the 30 some odd that we've done over three different funds, the large majority, probably 26, 27, something like that, we've led or co-led the round and we had a board seat. There's been a few exceptions to that. But in those cases, since we are on the board, oftentimes we're the only representative of the preferred shareholders on the board. We are taking a very active role. So the first 
year, 18 months, in some cases, even two years, we act as an adjunct member of the executive team. I'm doing weekly calls. We're at a very tactical level uh, trying to help the companies. Now, if all goes well, I'm growing out of that role, right? Weekly becomes too repetitive, too redundant, and then maybe every other week is appropriate, and then eventually once a month is plenty of time for us to talk. But that's as company scale, and that's as executive staff start filling in those seats around the, the table. In the early days, it's often me and the CEO, or Jim and the CEO, and we're trying to build that company and get it to the point where we don't need to be as involved. It's because that's where it breaks down. The model breaks down. If, it, if you don't remove yourself from the weekly flow, then you're going to limit the number of companies that you could be helpful to. Can you give us a sense for how that weekly engagement looks? Uh, are you reviewing metrics at a high level? Are you framing sort of the discussion? Are you wearing the marketing hat and contributing by reporting on lead acquisition, conversion, uh, sales efforts, things of that nature? How does that weekly early meeting go when you're stepping in as a part of the executive team? Yeah, that's a timely question because I just had this conversation last week with uh, with a CEO that we invested in probably two months ago, a month and a half ago, because we're just now getting our cadence down. And the answer is it evolves, it changes. The, the topics are going to change over time depending on what's the most important issue the company's facing. I always leave it up to the CEOs. We want them to value our input and to look our input. We don't want to pose our input. So I always say to our CEOs, you were dictating the cadence of this call, not me. If you think every week is too often, believe me, I've got other things I could fill my time with. If you feel like that you're just not getting value from these calls, then you know we should really talk about the way they're structured and consider changing that. What I also ask them to do is please don't ever prepare something just for me. Don't run a report just for me. Don't look for metrics just for me. I should be able to help you based on the metrics and reporting that you're using to run your business. If I can't help you with that data, then there's something's wrong. Like there's a breakdown somewhere. Uh, but I shouldn't be asking you to prepare a bunch of special stuff just for me. And that tends to work pretty well because that reduces the overhead. Now the CEO isn't having to run a bunch of reports to satisfy some investor. They just simply come to the conversation with the data and the numbers that are used in the run of business. So it's going to vary. Sometimes it's going to be, you know, we have a, we're trying to ramp up our sales. We've been talking a lot about that. We're ramping up our marketing. And you know how it is in business. There's always a point of the arrow that's the focal point. So, you know, sometimes it's not enough leads for marketing. Sometimes it's not enough sales for sales. Sometimes it's product development, pipeline obstacles in the, in the product roadmap. Whatever the issue is that the CEO is currently contemplating, try to talk about it. The other thing we do, um, which my wife finds hilarious because I think I'm the world's worst. I would be the world's worst therapist. Like I just don't think I have that personality. <laughs> but as, as you know, as an investor, you become a bit of a therapist for your CEOs because sure. even if they have a co-founder, there's things they can't talk about inside their company. There's personality conflicts. Maybe there's a conflict with another investor. Maybe it's with a CEO at another company that they're partnering with. Who knows, right? But they can't just walk around the halls of their own company sort of whining and complaining or just needing a shoulder to, to, to lean on. And often the investors play that role. So that's in the mix too. You know, that's certainly not an everyday occurrence or a weekly occurrence, but I think it's an important part of the process where it's a trusted voice and a trusted sounding board that they can feel very comfortable being honest with and then getting hopefully some, some instructive feedback. Yeah. My wife runs a psychotherapy practice and, uh, 
Sometimes wow. I, I wish she could be involved in some of these meetings because uh, <laughs> she'd be a lot more helpful than me. <laughs> I don't doubt it. So can you talk a little more about this philosophy of being more hands-on and more engaged with entrepreneurs and why you've chosen this approach as opposed to maybe a more high-volume approach and being a little less hands-on? Yeah. I think people do what they want to do and they rationalize it. So they wrap all this rationalization around what they want to do. Um, so I could give you some kind of a academic textbook sounding answer, or, but that would just be bullshit. Like I just, this is the way I want to invest, right? This is the way I want to interact with my entrepreneurs. So what, what we found is sort of the obvious, which is we have to be very, very careful going into these conversations before we write a check, that it's the right that's the right style of interaction with the entrepreneur. You know, frankly, when I was an entrepreneur, I didn't want this kind of involvement from my investors. The chemistry wouldn't have been good. And I probably would have turned an investor like myself off because I just would have made it clear to them I'm not looking for this amount of help. Interesting. Um, it's fine, right? It's just we all have different personalities. So since we are so early on, we really have to have this partnership approach with our entrepreneurs. And they have to really feel like, that they're getting some value beyond just the check. We're never the highest valuation. We're never going to be the most expensive term sheet. We want the entrepreneurs to really reach and want to work with us because we think that in the long term, and we really strive to put ourselves on the same side of the table as the entrepreneur. And we do, and certainly in every conversation where we can do it, we don't put any weird, funky terms in our term sheet. We try to make our stock as close to their stock so that we're both looking at the company through the same lens and with the same agenda. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Your startup is going to change the world, and the right corporate card will get you there even faster. The Brex corporate card for startups offers 10 to 20 times higher limits than traditional corporate cards, automated expense tools, and huge rewards like four times points back on travel, three times back on restaurants, and two times back on recurring SaaS spend, and all with no personal guarantee. Sign up at Brex.com and get waived card fees for life with the code TFR. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Assure. For over three years, Newstack has been raising capital on a deal-by-deal basis, allowing individual investors to select each startup investment. Assure is the company behind the scenes that powers this process. When we have 10, 20, or 30 angels investing in a startup, we can't put all those folks directly on the startup's cap table. So those investors are rolled into a special purpose vehicle that occupies just one line item on the cap table. And Assure handles all ongoing fees, finances, and K-1s for us. We pay a one-time upfront fee and avoid all the required yearly admin filings and bills. If you run an angel group or you would like your LPs to invest in deal-by-deal sidecars, go to assure.co slash TFR for 20% off your first SPV. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Got it. So you talked a little bit about board seats before. With all these investments, are you actively taking a director seat? For the most part, so I don't know the exact numbers, but certainly 80 plus percent, we have an active board seat. There's a few companies that we were primarily California focused. 
not 100%. We have investments you know, throughout the country, but we're going to look at every deal, but we're going to invest mostly in California. And that's because we want to be involved. We want to be local. We think if you're an early stage investor, it helps if you're local, if you're going to be a high volume, excuse me, low volume, high commitment. And so the actual number of board seats, again, is going to come down to, do we think we can be helpful on this board? And do we think the chemistry is good with this CEO that, um, you know, that's going to welcome involvement? And that, for us, it's in most cases, that's the answer to both of those yes. That will conclude part one of the interview with John. Stay tuned for part two, where we will cover the remaining questions, including how the nature and intensity of John's interaction changes over the course of a startup's development, John's opinion on accelerators and if they're an index investing strategy or not, his thoughts on firms that are high volume and low engagement. We also talk about the number of portfolio companies in which an investor can be highly engaged. Other thoughts on ways that investors can be most helpful. And we'll take a little sidebar to talk about diversity on both sides of the table from the VC perspective as well as the entrepreneurial perspective. Hope you join us for part two. Until then, over prepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. See you again soon. Mm-hmm.